0: Hello, hello, hello. Day two of PaizoCon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Eric Mona, the Chief Creative Officer and Publisher at Paizo, and welcome to the panel, which is entitled, Old People Talk About Paizo. Yay! <laughs> and I have got a <laughs> group yeah, yeah, yeah. of some of our, our finest vintage uh, Paizo employees here, we thought. Uh, at PaizoCon, you know, it's all about the gaming, it's all about and big new announcements, what's going on with new upcoming uh, products, but it's also about Paizo itself. And as we're looking at the this calendar of events, you know, um, I thought let's do something that just kind of talks about the company, maybe a little bit about what it's like to work at the company, some of the things that we've done in the past, um, and who better to talk to me and join me on this journey, this retrospective, if you will, than some of the folks who have been here almost the entire time so what i would like to do without further ado is ask the members of our panel to introduce themselves and i think uh let's start i'm gonna try and do this in what i remember to be hiring order but i'm not sure if it's actually the case so i think the next person to introduce themselves is mr james jacobs james take it away
1: hi i'm james jacobs i'm the Creative director for Pathfinder at Paizo, and um, I'm glad you're going before me, Eric, because uh, I always remember my starting date is pretty much a year after your starting date, almost to the day. Right, right. So I don't have to remember
0: that exact date. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into our Paizo origin stories in just a minute. So, James, tell Mm -hmm. us what, what it is that you do for Paizo now. Um,
1: kind of a little bit of everything as the creative director. I'm, I'm looking over all of the books and products we do doing reviews through them during the development process, outline process, and then final approval stages and, uh, doing a lot of meetings and stuff like that. But at the same time, sort of on a parallel set of train tracks, I'm doing a lot of development of, of extra projects, uh, uh, that need an additional bit of help for most of the time during, um, the whole pandemic uh, thing. Over the last year, I've been working on Kingmaker quite a lot. So
0: yes, that's uh, sort of those
1: two kind of parallel tracks.
0: Cool. And that's interesting, because that's a product that kind of harkens back in some way to some past stuff at Mm -hmm. Paizo and one of our most popular campaigns. And we'll talk about that, I think a little bit later in the event. Now, here's where things get a little tricky. But I think Jason is next. Is that true?
1: Nope.
2: I think Sarah has Damn, been beat by Sarah, about a month.
0: No, we're starting to get demented. That's the important thing to understand about those of us who've been <laughs> here as long. Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself next?
3: Hi, I'm Sarah Robinson, and I'm the director of visual design at PIZO. And um, see, I've been there since I've been here since what seventeen years, I think now. So that's a long time.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, and then thank you, Sarah. Then that brings us to the baby of the group mr jason
3: <laughs> <Bullman>. <laughs> Why don't
2: you yourself? yeah i'm uh, i'm jason bullman i'm the director of game design uh at paizo i've been here since october 2004 so that's 16 and a half 16 and three quarters here something like that uh closing in on 17. uh i uh i'm the uh I I kind of these days I manage the rules teams and uh, make sure that they're all going in the right direction and they have the support they need. And I spend the rest of my time kind of going over new product pitches, coming up with new product pitches and trying to figure out uh, where we're taking our games in the future.
0: Awesome. So there are basically, I would say, three different sort of distinct eras of paizo at this point if you will we're in the the third one right now which is you know the second edition pathfinder era the Starfinder era if you will the modern era Um, then we've got the period before that which i think fair to say sort of the whole first edition pathfinder era Uh, and then prior to that we were doing the magazines uh, for Dungeons and Dragons. We did Dragon and Dungeon Magazine. The company did a couple of other magazines like Amazing Stories and one called Undefeated. And so one thing that all four of us have in common is that we have been at the company through all three of those eras. We started, all of us, on either Dragon or Dungeon Magazine, and we have continued all the way through into our current roles. But that is quite a journey. And every journey starts with an origin story. And so I'd like to have us focus a little bit kind of on how each of us joined the company, kind of what it was like at the time, what what our initial thoughts were, what our initial, you know, maybe concerns were, uh, and uh, talk a little bit about that. And I guess I'll start because I want to do this sequentially. Um, My origin story is pretty basic. I came with the furniture, you know, we spun off uh from wizards of the coast in 2002 and at that time i was the uh an editor on dungeon magazine at that time we'd shifted uh, an earlier magazine called polyhedron into dungeon polyhedron had traditionally been uh, uh, for the rpga network uh, official magazine similar to like pathfinder society and starfinder society the organized play program for D. and uh, at a certain point they wanted to shift the magazine out of membership they wanted to make membership free so i got transferred over to the periodicals department and about uh, two years after that but a year after that um, they spun off the periodicals department entirely. So we packed up the entire office one day and we moved across town from Renton to Bellevue and started a, a first office, Pisa One. Um, and that thing uh, had probably about 14, 15 staff members maybe. And it, the entire staff was the periodicals department at Wizards of the Coast? So for the first several years, especially while we were still working on the licensed magazines, um, we felt pretty much just like we were a satellite office of Wizards. Um, most of our friends, you know, were still at Wizards. It was a it was an interesting period of time, and uh, so yeah, so I've I've been here all along, um, but very shortly after uh, we started. The staff started shifting up a little bit. Some people uh, got jobs back at R&D, designing D&D. I uh, really just wanted to do magazines, so I was happy to stay at Paizo. And uh, as people started leaving, we started looking for new people to plug in some of those gaps and uh, i think maybe the first person that we brought in or at least the first person i remember bringing in on the words editorial side was mr james jacobs so james i think that brings us to your origin story so face front true believers and get ready for a stupendous tale from mr james jacobs
1: (laughs) stupendous huh no now i have to make stuff up um, So before I started working at Paizo, I'd already been working a lot on the magazines, uh, mostly Dungeon Magazine, and I would applied over and over. I was working at Wizards of the Coast in the before times in the sales department and I applied often to R&D and to the periodicals department. I kept trying to, you know, get a job over there and I kept coming in second or third place. And uh, it was about a year after that uh, Paizo spun off that um, the job that I was really hoping I would get, I saw... Uh I went I got up from my desk at Wizard of the Coast to go get a drink from the vending machine or something like that. They had uh, the vending machines were all set to a quarter or something like that. So you could just get all the soft drinks you wanted. Um a tradition that still and I continues looked out the at window. That's true. Um I looked out the window and there mm-hmm. downstairs was uh I think it was Chris Perkins handshaking a Paizo, ex paizo employee that I knew was going for the same job I was, and I realized I didn't get that job. So that was pretty disappointing. Uh, I went back to my desk and I think within a couple of hours, I got a phone call from Johnny Wilson, who basically said they took one of mine, so I'm taking one of theirs.
0: Do you want to work at Paizo? And I did. So I did. Johnny Wilson was our first publisher at Paizo. I am the third publisher. Um, so Johnny at that time was, uh, in charge of all the periodicals at Wizards. He had an electronic gaming monthly background. And, yeah, he was a little aggressive sometimes, you know, and, and you were, in fact, targeted. Uh, we we knew someone was leaving and we said, who's one of our best contributors? Who's really going to pull this off? And at that time, too, I was going to get promoted to be the editor-in-chief of Dragon. And it was kind of like one of these deals, which is like, well, I can do it, but I, I think we're going to need James to really pull it off. And, boy, howdy, was that ever true, because I never could have done that job alone without you, James. So, James, so you come to Paizo. Yeah. From sort of the mothership, you're like,
1: all right, I'm Yeah and, and I remember like the one of the first things you told me to do is here, we're doing this thing about Raries super famous. You probably heard of him. Do a stat block.
0: Yeah, it's a twenty third block. That was sort of a block. trial no by problem. fire. You know, that is, yeah. yeah, you know, that would be a that James would be a nobody, will, nobody pay attention to Raries. Yeah. That was one of those primary tasks where I said, I'm going to need someone else to do that because that sounds really, really hard. And uh, you really stepped up to the plate and and did it. And I remember um, one of the early adventures we did was, uh, I believe it was by Monty Lynn. It was called The Stink in dungeon (laughs) magazine and it had a bunch of uh it was like you're crawling around in a sewer sort of a thing and we wanted to create a bunch of diseases specific to it or maybe it had some diseases but they they needed some oomph and that was like one of the earlier things that i handed you as well which is like james kind of i don't know maybe you maybe you'd be good at gross stuff you know can you make a disease or two for us and the hideousness of what you produced in that I mean I think it made me fall in love instantly, you know. And and then the art team at the time had him illustrated. Uh, uh do you remember gibbering gout I think was one of the diseases? Yep. Um there were a couple others, but man that was some proto James Jacobs paizo development going on there and uh it brings a tear to my eye just to think about it today. What was uh well we'll get to people's first impressions I guess a little bit later. Let's get somebody else in here. Sarah. Um so Sarah, you came in uh, as I recall, about the time we were working, maybe a little bit before we were working on the big Mari Castle dungeon number 112 big program. I remember that, I remember that anyway as being one of your biggest, uh, or f- one of your first credits. What's your memory? What, what's your origin story? Tell us how you came in. What, you know, how did that happen?
3: Uh, well, mine, uh, um, I answered a Craigslist ad. Um, it was for an appointment, uh-huh. and the headline was like, uh do you like games and i'm like well yes i do like games um so i came in and um and first of all I, I i i was not in um the uh i was not in the no rpg games um uh, tabletop games so uh, it was this was all new to me coming into uh, paizo but um yeah so i just answered a Craigslist thing for uh for a graphic designer and been there ever since
0: <laughs> nice and so you what was your background before you came in here you were working on Nintendo, oh, i stuff,
3: right? yeah i was a graphic designer for um a magazine um nintendo power um we i worked with actually sonia and recently uh kyle um with on a At V Design, and we did layouts for Nintendo Power, so that's why I thought, you know, this was going to be video games instead of tabletop games. So I was like, okay, yeah, this sounds fun, right up my alley. And then I came in, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know that this stuff um, really was around still. So it was all new, new stuff to me.
0: It was kind of cool, actually, because at the time we had um, most of the staff. I mean, it was still the only real openings at that time were people who kind of had left for whatever reason, we weren't growing, you know, it was was startup business style at that point in time. And I remember having you come in. Your uh your design skills were super super strong, and your background in gaming was strong. And you mentioned Kyle Hunter, who was the guy who actually designed the Pyzo Golem logo. He was working on the magazines at the time as well, and has subsequently come back to join the staff about uh, within the last year, which is exciting. Um, but you know, you you had kind of um. I don't wanna say an outsider perspective, but like you weren't sort of from the cult of Wizards of the Coast, right? And so to, to have you there as like a sounding board of like, okay, we all think this is cool. Sarah, is this cool? And sometimes you'd be like, no, that's not cool. And it's like, right, okay, okay, we'll try harder, you know? So it, it kind of encouraged us to 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 not just preach to the choir so much. So that was a, that was a big moment. Um, and obviously the impact uh, in the years since has been a significant. Bowman, we're coming back to you. So, I mean, honestly, the team is already in place. So then we need you to join us. Tell us what that was like. I'm starting to forget. I'm so old.
2: Well, I was um I was working in Milwaukee. I was a I was an architect and um but in my in my side time, I had been working for the Living Greyhawk campaign. And in fact, you hired me to be a part of the Living Greyhawk campaign back when you were at Wizards. And uh, I had kind of progressed in that I'd started out as a triad member, kind of a local administrator and then been promoted to a circle member, which was like a campaign wide administrator. And I had gotten in good with Wizards of the Coast. I had started doing some some freelance work and um, I had pitched and had accepted a dungeon adventure for Dungeon 114. And that was Mad God's Key. And on the strength of that and a bunch of my other contacts, I had applied for a job at Wizards of the Coast. I didn't get it. Um, but during that period of hiring at Wizards of the Coast, uh, uh, they had uh, taken more folks back from Paizo and left an opening. And I, in, as part of my interview process, I flew out there to interview with, with Wizards, but I visited the early Paizo offices And if I recall correctly, I was put in a hallway to hang out until the workday was done and uh, handed the slush pile. I was, I was handed the the dungeons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, (laughs) I was handed the dungeon slush pile and put to work. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was good times and, uh, you know, uh, when that opening was available, I got a call from, uh, some folks I interviewed for the, for the open position as, uh, I want to say, um, managing editor of dragon. And, uh, I accepted it and started God, like three or four weeks later, I drove out and, uh, was in a tiny little studio apartment in Bellevue for three months while my, all my things back in Milwaukee were packed up to move out. And, uh, yeah, the, the early days were kind of scary though, because I was there like I wanna say like a month or two before undefeated and amazing stories were kind of closed up. Right. And I remember going to you in those early days and being like, Is is this bad? Should I should I pack up and just go home? <laughs> and uh yeah. well, I'm kinda of glad I didn't
0: well we're very glad that you didn't i mean that um so a couple of thoughts on that jace you know around that time again it was like okay we brought you in um uh, did we bring you in as the managing editor of, of dragon was that your first title so i i was i know I you was ended offered up there. the title
2: i was offered the title of managing editor but i started out as associate or yeah associate editor for like six months or something and okay. then Because, frankly, I didn't have any editing experience. I had game experience. And I was brought to the team to be the kind of 3.5 game guru.
0: Right, right. We needed somebody. We had a lot of folks who were sort of really strong at the the English language stuff. And we had a lot of folks who were really strong at the lore of D&D stuff. And then we had a bunch of folks who were pretty good. Uh, and I would include James and I guess probably myself in the just kind of making up stuff for D&D side. But we didn't necessarily have the person who like everybody trusted 100% that if they looked at a stat block, they could find an error or whatever. And we absolutely needed that. Because of course you're sending a magazine out to 50, 60,000 thousand people you make a mistake and you're going to hear about it you know all the time so you were you know we really were targeting you you'd been so helpful to me on the the um pathfinder or i'm sorry on the the uh, living greyhawk front and i knew that you had the chops for it and you again just come off that that uh, mad god's key adventure which was was critical um you know and that actually interestingly enough kind of plays into this story as well because Mad God's key was the first adventure or was one of the adventures in dungeon number 114 and dungeon number 114 was the first volume of this big creative reboot that we were supposed to do so so you know pulling ten thousand feet up at paizo now another major change that was happening around this time is our first publisher johnny wilson left the company um i you know one day johnny had it up to here with the technology constraints of a small company and kind of blew up. And then the next day, he didn't come back to work. And he was uh, replaced with uh, Keith Strom, who was my immediate predecessor as publisher at Paizo. And Keith had been a brand manager at uh, Wizards of the Coast on D&D. Keith had been an editor uh, at TSR on things like Ravenloft and some other projects. And so he had a huge experience. And when he came um, I think he and Lisa, our CEO hatched a plan to kind of shake things up a little bit and they wanted to essentially relaunch dungeon and dragon magazine. And so we did that. And with the relaunch of dungeon, James and I worked really hard on trying to kind of come up with, uh, the right plan for dungeon. And then on the, uh, the dragon side, it was a Chris, Chris, Young, Chris Thomas and now Chris Young's and, um, uh. Matt we were working on the Dragon side. And I remember being really excited about what James and I were coming up with on the, uh, the Dungeon side, but the Dragon side seemed to be veering in a direction that was very much like, oh, oh, I know, Dragon can be the magazine that's just for players, and Dungeon can be the magazine that's for just GMs. And whereas Dungeon, I think, always had been a magazine largely for GMs. Um, I always felt like Dragon was the magazine for everybody. It was kind of like the magazine of D&D. And so I was a little nervous about that. But in short succession, you know, Johnny left, Chris left. Matt left, uh, and all of a sudden, I'm holding the reins of Dragon Magazine as well. And so I needed to, which was great, by the way, kind of like what I wanted to do since I was eight. But I also knew that I was never going to be able to do all that alone. Never going to be able to keep Dragon or uh, Dungeon afloat. We were getting just starting to get into um, the planning for Age of Worms. Wanted to see that through. And so I, we we were going to need to have strong people on both teams and that's where uh jay uh jason that's where you came into this story so all right so we're all and
2: and those yeah those early days were about like like there was like when i when i started the the magazine was very very player focused and some of that stuff certainly stuck around that was like class acts if you remember all those Mm -hmm. um and yeah we did we did that all the way up through the end um but you right. know, having big, giant, splashy GM articles really became key to the to the relaunch's success.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about the RPG business in general is that there are more players. And thus if you do a book that's geared toward here's stuff for your character all that that book generally speaking is probably going to sell better than a book that's just aimed purely at gms but the dirty little secret is that gms probably buy five times as much stuff as players do overall so you know if you pick one lane you're gonna you're gonna cut out a fair amount of customers and, and that seemed foolish to do for dragon so i remember when i first my first Dragon editorial was like two or three issues after Matt Sernett's, where he's you know laying out his whole plan for the magazine, and and my editorial was like, remember that stuff Matt just told you? We're not going to do any of that. <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was an interesting approach, and and it uh, you know that was a fun time. You know, you mentioned you know the uh, undefeated and amazing stories then also kind of wrapped things up because that they weren't going so great. We had um the the license that we had to do star wars insider magazine ended and all of a sudden paizo shifts to it's the dragon and dungeon company you know we're just doing D magazines all of the other sort of business units that we had set up had closed we had to unfortunately lay some of those folks off that's where we lost kyle hunter the guy who did the uh the the, the paizo logo like i mentioned because he was art directing undefeated, which was a, it was a magazine for games you can win, you know? And so it was a lot of miniatures games and board games, cool magazine, beautiful magazine, but just a tough time to launch a magazine in that era. And so um, here we were, and all of a sudden the entire weight of the company seems to be falling largely on the shoulders of the four in in this presentation and about four to six other folks. And it was just the, The path, or it was just the the D&D magazines. And, you know, you and others came, uh, Jason, and said, oh, my God, you know, are we, I just started my job. Am I going to lose it? And that had been one of the big reliefs, actually, of shifting away from Wizards. It's not this way anymore, as I understand it there, but back in the late 90s and and, uh, early 2000s, every so, uh, every christmas you'd pretty much assume you and some of your friends were going to get laid off cuz that just seemed to be the way they did their business is they'd they'd run like mad and then about october they'd start saying okay who do we lose just to kind of make our numbers at the end of the year and that was a terrifying experience actually and kind of for me ruined um, the lifelong goal of wanting to work on D and D because every eight months, you'd just be worried that someone was just going to knock you off your, your pedestal. And I wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case at Paizo, but yet here we are like year one or year two. And it's like, okay, guys, we're just going to hold on, you know, don't pay too much attention to the empty desk next to you. And we just had to bust our ass on the magazines. And I think that that, I don't want to say desperation, but that, that we needed to succeed. Um, Really played into some of the innovations that went into things like the Age of Worms Adventure Path, like the graphic redesign of Dungeon and Dragon magazine that came about Dragon three twenty three, Dungeon one uh, one fourteen, um, Age of Worms started one twenty one. You know, so we're really into the the the. That's probably what I would say when we benefited from the goodwill when we launched pathfinder it was goodwill that we had largely earned during the era of the magazines that started at about that point in time essentially i would say with this cast of characters at the head um and uh so yeah so there we are magazines uh going great guns let me see what my next questions were i mean do you guys have any memories from that era that you think could be fun to share from the magazine era.
2: Oh God! I mean, that era was so that there's so much from that era that was that was you know kind of looking back at it, it's like I don't know how we ever kept on schedule. That the the you know cramming out ninety six pages of content every thirty days, getting it approved, getting it laid out, getting it edited, you know, and and on top of that, there was just kind of like I think back to those days, and I just remember a lot of the zany kind of hijinks like the time we all got snowed in the office and I it ended up trudging <laughs> down to the QFC to get food because none of us had food because it was an office. And like the early message boards, there had theories about who we were going to eat
3: <laughs> like yeah, they, they like
2: were really just. Really yeah, I think I think the end result is we took a poll and it was Phil. We ate Phil, so <laughs> yeah,
0: and Phil Lacefield. uh just yeah, slides off yeah. the phone. You know um, <laughs> one thing that I think was a personal fun memory of mine there that touches on all of you guys, and maybe maybe we can talk about this for just a few minutes. And I see there's a question about it in the chat, and then after that, I think I'll open it up to questions from the chat. Um, we've covered the early years of Paizo now, you know, like everything else is Pathfinder. You've all heard about that, but but the um, we all played in a game together that I ran, which was the uh, okay. the Age of Worms uh, play test campaign essentially. Um, and we, uh, and, and so, um, it was, I believe Sarah's first tabletop RPG experience. So she's learning the dice and stuff. It, uh, it was a big group. I mean, I would say there was eight or nine people in that group. Um, pretty much the entire editorial department, anyone who wanted to play, uh, was able to play. Um, let's see, James, why don't you talk a little bit of, what are your, some of your memories of that campaign? um i remember uh
1: being weirded out at having to play a character in a campaign that i had largely developed and written large sections for so it was sort of a challenge to me to um it was my first really big challenge of like keeping player knowledge separate from my uh character knowledge and all of that stuff so i really just instead of trying to like build a character that was focused on um exploring the game and all of that i built a character that was a weird sort of uh born dead cultist of Wejus, who was sort of a not very nice cleric you know the idea of like i'm the party cleric but i'm not nice so you're not guaranteed to get healing and um sort of a character that was more focused on exploring how they would, uh, uh, interact with the other players because I knew everything that was coming, you know? Um, but I didn't know how, uh, Jason and Sarah and Wes and Mike and, and Jeremy and all these other players in the group, were gonna build their characters. So that was really what I wanted to focus on was how a weird sort of off-putting once dead cleric would interact with a bunch of adventurers.
0: And your character's name was Tirlandi Scrim. Yes.
1: Teralini Scrim, named after Angus Scrim from the Phantasm uh, movie Star of uh, the Tall Man.
0: Awesome. And the uh, you actually journaled some of the early days of that campaign that are still available on the Paizo message boards. So if you want to look up the oh, journal that's right. of Teralini Scrim, you can kind of. See how the campaign played out for the first few I, uh, few months.
1: I remember the last session you ran was um, the gladiator combat, and I managed to uh-huh. like charm an ogre and and had them carry me off the field like on a palanquin to try to like earn extra credit points with the uh, the, the 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 absurd all the audience. And I think it maybe worked, but I never found out because then uh, we,
0: we never played again. And we we never played again. Alas, the uh, the, the. But we could medication. play again. I mean, you should pick it up. Convert age of worms yeah, to mean, second like, edition. I heard like, people are interested. Four in that. of us still work at Paizo. Only one person's <laughs> dead. I think we, you know, let's get it together. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, you, yeah. um, you, you remember your character?
3: Yeah, as uh Dejen Kim, or yeah, I was a ranger.
0: Dayjin Moon, I think you helped yeah, me. Yeah, a ranger.
3: Yep, and you helped me with my character, and um, I remember asking you. I was like, okay, so we're going to play for like an hour. Right. And you're like, no, we're going to pay for play for like four or five hours. I was like, what? I'm like, how, how are we going to play for that long? And <laughs> I was just like, oh, oh, okay. Well, uh, okay. Well, but I mean, I had a lot of fun. I think it was, um, a great learning experience coming in, um, designing all the books for the stuff, but then getting to actually get to know the game and play the game. I, it was fun. And, um, yeah i thought I thought it was a fun game even though it was a it was a very big group
0: <laughs> very big group and uh it must have been in some ways fairly intimidating experience as your first gaming I it thing, was, cause I that
3: wasn't yeah I wasn't expecting like all the different voices and the role playing even though it is a role playing game so it was it was very all new to me but it was it was it was great
0: <laughs> and it was fun to see also you know from my perspective of like that context, I think, started to really help the design choices and things you're making as well as you started to kind of understand, oh, wait, I now have made a character. Now I fully understand kind of how you would need to kind of cross-reference this and that. And here's a graphic design solution for that. So, you know, that that was great to have yep. you in the game, and, and, and but it was also good for the products. And that was true for all of us, I think, having played through that. I do think it enhanced the overall AP. Uh, we'll get to questions, but I want to get Jason. What are some of your thoughts on what was your character? Do you remember anything from that Age of Worms campaign? I was
2: playing Gar Blitzheim, uh, my my dwarf uh, fighter wizard, um, and uh, I have I have a lot of memories of that campaign. I remember that the first character who died was Abelard. It was Wes's character who died to a swarm. Uh, and we ended up naming the group right. Abelard's Band because of it. Um, and, uh, oh God, I ended up with an owlbear cub that kept trying to eat me, uh, that I tried to make a pet. Um, and, uh, I think that my was favorite story, what well, Beaky. Yeah. This is Beaky. Right. Uh, but, but by far, Beaky my won. favorite story from, from that campaign was, was, uh, the murderous froffle thimble, <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. who, who,
2: who was played by, was that, was that Mike, Mike McCarter? I think that was Mike, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Mike McCarter Dragon, was uh, playing the
0: the editor, Mike McCarter. Yep,
2: yeah, he was that, thimble was clearly evil, <laughs> and he he kept messing with my character and would like threaten me when i sleep and eventually we were playing hall of harsh reflections we were playing my adventure and um i'd i played it dumb the whole way and we got to the end where there's the um the mind flare and it had stunned everyone including frothful uh but i had broken out of it the mind flare was dead and I just took an axe to frothel thimble. I was just like, nope, that's it. I'm done with you. <laughs> and I was just trying to dig up the drawing I did of him floating face down in the sewer. Because <laughs> he, he looked like a murderous
1: lawnmower.
2: Yeah, I could find it was
1: uh, I mean Mike uh, uh has passed away since then. Um, but I I yeah. just remember his character. He was he was arguably the nicest kind, most kind-hearted person in the entire company. I mean, there was, he was the the kind of guy that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, he was, he was amazingly friendly. Uh, He had just a giving personality and this character that he played was just this, this gnome that was on the surface, you know, it was like Mike's playing this gnome. That's kind of a whimsical, fun little character, but no, 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 no. He was, he was a bad apple. That's for sure. He he was a little murder (laughs) clown.
0: So yeah, I want to tell a story about that game. And you all know the story I Uh-oh. want to tell. And I have to be very careful because I don't want to name any names. But I will say it's not <laughs> that the main <laughs> culprit of this is not present uh, on the panel right now. And, and their name is not important. But I'm running the game one night. And what would often happen is between the end of the workday and the beginning of the game, someone would go to the supermarket and get some treats. Like maybe chips or some drinks or a plate of snickerdoodle uh, cookies. And this one time, I'm running the <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking about. I'm running this game and like everybody's like there's snickerdoodles plenty and everybody's had a snickerdoodle, you know, snickerdoodles are these beautiful uh cinnamon like uh, I think uh, uh cookies with some crusty like uh Jason's turned off his camera. With some, like adjusting of different sugars and things and i'm I'm running the game and I'm full into it, you know, like I'm getting into my character, I'm probably doing Balabar Smank, the villain, my favorite NPC of all time, and all of a sudden, I'm looking around, and I think the first thing I notice is Sarah Robinson's face is just horrified, just like this look of sheer like disgust, literal disgust. And, I, and I'm and i like, oh, gosh, you know, did I say something wrong? What guy really wants Sarah to get into this game? Like, what are we scaring her? Is, is it too nerdy? You know, should I turn down the RPG? But then I look at Bowman, and Bowman's got his arms crossed. He's all, oh, you know, like he's beset by something, you know, and I, and I don't understand what's going on. And, 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 and I'm like sitting there eating a snickerdoodle, you know, trying to figure it all out. And then I turned to look at, at, at James Jacobs and like, you could see, like, he'd lost sanity points somehow, you know, like his, the colors drain from his face. Everyone almost is like in horror and I'm eating the snickerdoodle and I look around and I notice like, Nobody else is eating snickerdoodles anymore for some reason. And then I notice a number of the, um, the group absentmindedly licking his finger like that, reaching over to the plate of snickerdoodles lightly. I think, and I apologize to the whole group, but I think the only word you could use is essentially fingering the uh you know using his finger to like play with the top absent-mindedly of the cookie get a little sugar on the wet finger and bring the wet finger back to his mouth and as i'm running the game i see this happen like three or four times and then i understood why no one else was eating snickerdoodles anymore and that was one of the grossest things. Not the grossest thing. I couldn't tell the grossest thing I've seen at a game table here in a live stream, but that was one of the grossest things. So always mind your. And in, in COVID era, that story is even grosser. I think. So we always yeah, laugh about sure. rules ever since then. Um, just uh, yeah, everybody just wash your hands at all times. Okay, what a better time than that wonderful story to bring open, uh, let's knock open the uh, the door for questions from the chat. I've got the chat window open here. Feel free to ask questions specifically uh, to any of us. Um, any of us will we'll answer pretty much anything, I think. So let's see here. Someone says, uh, the first question I see, did we talk about Lion Rampant? We did not. That would be more of a Lisa Stevens story. Lisa, uh, our CEO, who unfortunately couldn't make it this uh, weekend, she started uh back in the day she's got stories about white wolf lion rampant all kinds of stuff i would encourage anyone who's interested in that and those stories go back into the 80s you know she is uh she's about a a decade older than us and so she uh, has been around for a long time and knows where a lot of the skeletons are buried in this business and if you're interested in hearing some of those early uh, rpg stories highly encourage you to look on youtube a number of her panels called auntie Lisa's Story Hour um, are online, on, on Paizo's channel, and they're fascinating. I, I sure hope uh, one of these days Lisa writes a book about her uh, career in this business. It would be fascinating to read, and it would definitely be one of those books where almost everyone in the industry would start looking at the index, and they'd find their name in there, and then they'd look to make sure they didn't get you know savage. But I'm sure Lisa would say nice things because she's such a nice person. Um, but Lisa's got a ton of great stories. So if you're interested in that line Rampant, White Wolf, early days of Wizards of the Coast, and then the kind of the founding of Paizo. Highly, highly encourage checking out those uh, those Auntie Lisa story hours. So let's see here. Oh, someone said Liquor Doodle. Oh, that's pretty funny. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. When London and Polyhedon were combined, <clears throat> what was your favorite mini game or weird setting? Um, boy, I liked almost all of them. I liked. Uh, Uh, Just randomly, John Tweets Omega World was really super, super cool. Um, We did, uh, uh, Andy Collins did a a Spelljammer revamp called Shadow of the Spider Moon that that had beautiful art that was really fun to work on. We did a pulp game that was really fun to work on. Um, I really liked uh, two oddball ones that I'm not sure anybody else liked, but I really had a lot of fun working on them, were uh, Thunderball Rally, which was kind of a cannonball run. Style race across America mini game where you could play an orangutan character, which I thought was awesome. And then we had one called Hijinks, which was like a cartoon yes. kid solve mysteries, uh, and you might be in a band or something like that. So that was a great era. We could explore kind of anything. And frankly, uh, the Overmasters at Wizards didn't have much to say about it, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. And so I could revive old brands, I could do completely off the wall things. And because it was a magazine, you didn't necessarily need to make the same argument of like, let's invest all the core rules support here, and it's gotta be our business model for a year. So we could really get away with some fun stuff. So those, I loved them all, but those were some of my favorites. Let's see here. Uh... I'm trying to get some. That are aimed more toward you guys um, okay, this is a good one that I think all of us can probably speak to and I'm gonna let you guys tell this one. Where did the idea for uh Pathfinder iconic characters come from? who wants to jump on that James
1: I can jump in there I guess um so back when they launched uh third edition d and d they they kind of had their little iconic characters for all of the classes uh characters you know like regdar and um uh oh i can not ember um all these different characters who were kind of the ambassadors of the classes in the players' handbook and we use them all the time in in the magazines and all of that but when we relaunched uh Dungeon in one fourteen we wanted to make our own sort of set of iconics, so we had wayne reynolds uh, design a bunch of new iconics and we sort of you know saw ourselves as like the scrappy underdog side of things so we were like well let's get a tiefling fighter and let's do this that and the other thing and and have characters that are sort of the, the 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 troublemaker iconics i guess and that's all we did. We kind of used them as art um, assets. So like we could send a, a picture of the wizard to an artist and say, do somebody looks like this rather than have to explain to the artist all the rules for illustrating wizards. Like you can't wear armor and this and the other thing. Um, and a lot of our readers were like, oh, who is this person? What's their name? What's their backstory? And we're like, well, uh, well, I don't know. They're, they're the wizard, they're the cleric. Um, so when it came along uh, to starting up Pathfinder we knew from the start, we wanted these sort of character ambassadors, these iconic uh, heroes for us to illustrate in the adventures and books we're doing. We knew people would wanna know their names. So from the very start, when we uh, started putting these characters on the cover of Pathfinder Adventure Path, we knew their names and their their backstories and their personalities and all of that. And uh, basically started doing Meet the Iconics almost from the start. The very first two were for Valorous and Sione. And at that point nobody even knew what a galarian was so their meet the iconic stories kind of had to do double duty about hey we're still doing the game you like here's a fighter you like fighters this guy still fights with fighting fights and um so they didn't really get into the their story and and mauricio i think was the first one where we actually had the chance to like start doing stuff for our version of iconics and we had uh, mauricio introduce the idea of like a forlorn elf and from that point on, people really reacted well to these Meet the Iconics and their growing stories. And it just kind of went from there. And uh, now every time we have a new rule book, figuring out who the new iconic is, is, is like as important as, you know, what is this book about? Because they're, they're kind of the stars of our show. We don't get to put our, we don't get to put main characters in the stories we tell because that's your player characters. And this is kind of the closest we get to the actual main characters of the Pathfinder <clears throat> world.
0: Sarah, what's your perspective from the art side? Um, You know, you were heavily involved in uh, the orchestrating of the iconic characters, Um, particularly the, the questioner was curious about Harsk. Do you have any memories of Harsk or anything that kind of went into working with Wayne on perfecting those early
3: iconics? Um, well, for the early on Iconics, I wasn't really involved, um, because I was still the I was just a graphic designer back then just laying out the books and stuff. But I do remember, um, you know, chatter throughout the office and stuff that, you know, the, we wanted these characters to be something that, like Jane said, that we can send to the artists to um, put into the illustrations instead of, you know, having described what each what each character should wear and all that kind of stuff. So it Kind of ma- it really made my life easier um doing art orders and stuff, and I think it kind of helps um you know uh, also get recognition of these characters being in our um, books all the time to get recognized that this- these are Pathfinder characters so yeah it just makes it just uh, makes everything easier for like the art and stories and to have these characters around all the time.
0: Yeah. And so you you recently fully orchestrated the second edition version of a lot of those characters. And we're coming back to some of those characters. Could you talk a little bit more about like what that process has been like? Maybe now that you're you got almost a decade of Pathfinder actually a full decade of Pathfinder behind you. What were you kind of setting out to do visually with Wayne on the new iconic characters?
3: Well for the new edition, I think what we the main thing was to keep it the same but different. (laughs) Um, We didn't want to go too far, because I know a There there's a lot of investment in these um, characters. But we also just wanted to update uh, some of the characters because of the um, uh, their weapons didn't work for them or some or whatever. And you know, kind of change up their costumes a little bit, just so it's not the same. But you know, just make it a little more interesting for the uh, new edition. And I think I think most of them, uh, we basically kind of stayed the same as um, look for it. But then, you know, um, just updated the poses and make it a little more interesting and maybe some more weapons that they need to for their adventures. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think Wayne did a pretty good job of keeping the same look, but also make it a little more interesting for the new edition. And I One think he he also had a lot of fun updating all these characters as well. I mean he you know, he once he gets started on a character, he's, he just goes and goes and adds more stuff. So <laughs> it's interesting to look at the characters and, you know, really zoom in and see all the stuff that he's added to these characters.
0: Yeah. And it's and he's got a story behind every single thing, too, which is amazing. Um, I think this one's mostly going to be aimed at you, Jason. Um, how did the archetype rules start and how did we feel when we really when we realized that archetypes became a core feature of Pathfinder?
2: <clears throat> well, I think so. We you know, the the rush to get the alpha, then the beta, then the core rule book out um, left planning for the future kind of a little nebulous, right? Um, the game mastery guide ended up coming together, um, mostly outside of, outside of, outside of me. I think that was mostly spearheaded by like James and Wes and folks. Um, but when it came to the advanced players guide, we knew we wanted a bunch of alternate class features. It was kind of a callback to, uh, some of the stuff we were doing back when we were doing class acts and dragon. So we, we, we had ordered a bunch of these from freelancers, but you know, at honestly, at the time it was like ordering new content from freelancers, ordering new rules expansions. You know, I was kind of learning as I went. So the order was really kind of loose, far looser than it, than it would be today. And as a result, what we got in was this weird kind of mix. We got some, Freelancers kind of bundled stuff together. Other freelancers uh, had things kind of spread apart, and it was kind of a pit, mix and match bunch of features. And in the development of the book, I was I was staring at all of them, and I'm like, well, these have to go one way or the other. They can't they can't some of them be a bundle, some of them be loose because you could just kind of cherry pick the best pieces and end up with a broken kind of character. So. Like the decision was made, you know, I was like, okay, well, let's make these into bundles. That way they have more of a cohesive theme and I'll, I'll, I'll figure out themes for all of them. Well, that made a whole bunch of extra work for me, but, um, that's kind of how archetypes got started was this, this need to have the advanced players kind of be unified and actually make sense. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think even from that early day, it was like, oh, there's something here. This actually is really kind of fun being able to say oh i'm this kind of fighter or i'm this kind of rogue um clearly was 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 working very well and it was easy to plug a lot of that stuff together um i ended up with a lot of stuff in the cutting room floor that ended up getting used in later books uh as a result but when it came out you know folks just couldn't get enough of them from that point forward we we we're dedicating a larger and larger share of every book we were doing to getting as many archetypes as possible, and that you know kind of led into some of our decisions about how we were going to use archetypes in second edition, because the way they were built in first was kind of a, a bolt on to the system, right? You know, the the core rulebook was was went through all of its design without any idea that that was even going to be a thing. Um, and as a result, they, they, it was just kind of added to the system, and it didn't work particularly well for classes without a lot of class features to swap out. Clerics, for example. Um, you know, a lot of the heavy spellcasters didn't get a lot of archetypes yeah. in first edition because there wasn't a lot of class features to swap out. And when we did, it was almost always the same thing. Um, so it was a bit of a challenge, and that led us to second edition, where we were like, okay, we need a unified kind of currency. In all of the classes that we can swap out, that way we don't have to do the swashbuckler archetype for four different classes. We can just do the, you know, the, you know, oh, you want the pirate archetype? Well, there's only one, and everyone can take it. So, you know, it, it was it was a lot of learning curve kind of stuff. It was very early in the design of of kind of the game and and how design even would work inside Piso You know, like we. With that book, we really realized that we had the keys to the kingdom and could kind of do whatever we wanted. Um, you know, the the core rule book was constrained in some ways for first edition because we had to make sure that it was it was backwards compatible to three five. Um, and but once we got to the advanced players guide, that's when we started doing our own thing.
0: So, okay, great. Um, This is gonna, I think, be maybe our last question and we will be over in the Discord right after this if people wanna follow up. If we didn't get to your question, I'm sure we'll be happy to answer it. Um, But uh, this is a a bit of a think piece and I think we can all speak to this. Jason, I think you can probably speak in depth uh, to this, but I'm actually um, just as curious to hear from James and Sarah on this topic. And uh, let me see. I lost the question here. So the question is from uh, TRDG11, and it is in hindsight, what would you have changed when first starting off in Pathfinder One? So we know we're going to do Pathfinder. We know what we know today. What would we have done differently with Pathfinder One? I'm going to start with James Jacobs. Or I'm going to jump to Sarah, and then we'll let Jason Jason talk for three or four hours. Uh, uh, <laughs> James, uh, what, what would you change if you could kind of go back and whisper something into the ear of all of us uh, back in 2006 or seven? Yeah, no, I guess, 2000. There's,
1: there's <laughs> so, so many things I could whisper. I'll pick just the first thing that popped into my head was uh, don't use a 10,000 year history for your campaign sitting shrink it down to right. maybe two or three or four thousand years. Uh mm-hmm. it's just we did we we went with the ten thousand year history going all the way back to Earthfall because we wanted a lot of room to add in new lore as we kept going forward. But it's just it's too much room. It's it's something that I think that um had we we condensed that down a lot more, it would have made a more cohesive history for the setting and Uh, We wouldn't have this weird sort of element of like uh, the implication that say after Earthfall, the age of darkness lasted for a thousand years and something like that would be an extinction level event. And there wouldn't be anything after that if it really was darkness for a thousand years on a planet. And um, I think to a certain extent, since it's fantasy, we get away with, you know, that being in the background and people don't really think about it too much. But it's something that I've kind of always, as, as we've gone on. Wish we we'd been a lot more concise about that.
0: I would be. That's a great answer. I would be willing to bet that the ten thousand year thing is an attempt to make Aslant more like Atlantis, since that's how long ago Atlantis yeah. allegedly sank. And so, but you know, Atlantis is like not real, so it's hard to understand how culture <gasps> scandal. You know, yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> Sorry to break your mind by saying Atlantis isn't real and then calling on you. But um uh Sarah, what would you what would you kinda what kind of secret knowledge would you pass to us from from the mighty year of twenty twenty one?
3: Um gee, I don't I really don't know. I think maybe well, I mean, this is just for me, but you know Yeah. Um a lot of our stuff is really long. <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> um yeah i mean i think that you know yeah i really don't know because i think most of the stuff that you know people want to hear is mostly just like lore and rules and stuff and so but um i don't know i, I don't i really don't know how to answer that question <laughs>
0: well let's let's break it down a little bit i mean uh I feel like our graphic design in 2021 is, is a lot more deliberate maybe than it was in 2009. We, you know, we, there's a little bit more thought put into it kind of across the board. Is there anything visually you would maybe do differently?
3: Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I would, for me, especially, I think finding information really quickly is very important to me. So I think maybe more breakdowns of, different sections and different um ideas um to more smaller um and not so bloated out would be kind of a more kind of a thing for me because because i came from a background from like you know um strategy guys where you gotta learn you gotta find information really quick for a game and so going through pages and pages and pages of information to find one information is kind of um onerous to me so that's kind of maybe something that would want to change
0: okay great uh bullman i'd like to get your answer and i challenge you to deliver it in under three minutes gotcha uh you know i i actually think
2: uh looking back there's there's so many things i would do differently i i think one of the biggest ones is that we had a very heavy reliance on what we at the time perceived as kind of tradition and what folks wanted out of out of first edition and that led to some decisions that today I'd be like, no, I don't. I don't think that's actually as as sacred of a cow as we as we thought it was at that time. And and frankly, uh, to speak to to uh, you know uh, Sarah's mention, I I wish we had had more art. I mean, admittedly, the the I think that that core rule book had just about every piece of art we owned at the time in it, um, but it it it's very text dense and could have used more space and more room to just kind of breathe. It might've made a bigger book, which I'm not sure uh, uh, would have been a plus, but I, I I think that it could have used more, more art and more space for art. Um, it does, it is very kind of rules, uh, text dense and heavy. I also think it definitely could have used more of Golarion in it. Um, we kind of made this call very early with with, first edition Pathfinder to keep the world and the game separate just for if folks didn't want to play in Galarian, their rulebook wouldn't be filled with that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, when we came to second edition, we were like, that's that's not actually helping us any. That's, that's, that's walling off uh, what is kind of a lot of really fun, engaging content from our players. And you know, if it's one chapter, it's easy enough to be like, well, I'm not using that. That's okay. Um, you know, there are plenty of parts of the book folks don't use. So that's that's perfectly fine. So, uh, you know, I've softened on a lot of those things uh, that I felt at the time were really important. And, and you know, they to some extent, those those factors probably contributed to our success. But I, I think that there there could have been a better way. I think we held on to a lot of things that, in retrospect, I, I, w- we shouldn't have been as precious. And I think when you look at second edition, you can see a lot of those changes made manifest.
0: Awesome. And thank you for the concise answer. That's great. Uh, We are pretty much out of time. In fact, so out of time. I can't, I don't even have an answer. I will say uh, I would change nothing. It was a hundred percent right the first time, especially after the seven rounds of errata. And uh, uh, why would we change anything? Uh, Because of the four people in this room, everything we've ever done has been right the first time. And I thank you for all of that. And I thank you for all of your efforts. If anybody uh, wants to uh, ask other questions, if we didn't, uh, you, everything that uh, interests you come on over to the discord uh, there's uh, uh for this chat it's uh paizo beginning years i think is what it'll be called And uh, we'll be there for the next hour to answer some questions. In the meantime, we've got a whole slate of additional programming to get to, and uh, we will leave you to it. So thank you very much for your attendance. Thank you for the great questions. This was actually fun. Uh, Maybe we'll do it again sometime. And thank you all for attending Pyzocon 2021. We'll see you next year and maybe later in this weekend. Bye, everybody. Thank you to my fellow panelists. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.